The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Thank you, Brett. You are exaggerating. Uh, It was very nice of you, though. And uh, thank you, Springs. It's good to see you all again. Uh, I know uh, quite a number of you personally as, as friends and they reflect well on this congregation as a whole. The rest of you, I'm sure I would love to meet in time. Uh, But it is always a pleasure for that reason, uh, based on at least a few of you that I do know quite well, uh, to come back here and and speak with good friends. And I'm, I'm glad to be a part of this summer series of yours, Hope in Action. It's an interesting title. Hope, as, as a languages guy, is one of the harder words for me to feel confident about. I don't feel hopeful about hope, uh, at least my grasp of it. But let's take a whack at it uh, together this morning. In fact, let's start with a weird passage. Well, not that one. Not that one either. This one from Job 13. Speaking of God... Job here says, though he kill me, I will hope in him. I will prove my case before him. Indeed, he is my vindication, for the corrupt do not come before him. It's a paradoxical statement, isn't it? In fact, if we didn't have any other context, which we do as Christians, knowing what we've come to know about God, if this he were any other he, Wouldn't that read as such a strange statement? Though he, though this being, though this person kill me, I'm still going to hope in that person. It's an odd statement. This is what I want to explore today, a hope that seems to be beyond hope in Job's case. But before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about what I do at Oklahoma Christian. I love what I do, equipping students with an understanding of the scriptures, to help them along in their relationship with God, wrestling with God, wrestling with the texts, as odd, clearly, as they sometimes can be. And part of what I love equipping students with is a knowledge of the biblical languages, as often as I can, and for as many students as are interested or are forced to (laughs) study the languages. But it really is a tool in the hands of a well-trained scholar uh, to be able to unpack the text in its original form and hopefully to share what they can with the rest of the church, broadly speaking. One bit of, of wisdom that was passed on to me, first of all, by, by others in the field, and now I feel it's my duty to pass on to them, and you all get the insider scoop today, is that much of the language of the Bible is not really philosophical in nature. In fact, it's not even like any kind of a systematic theology, which is its own kind of philosophy. For those of you who don't know that term, systematic theology is is basically a theology, an understanding of God, which is systematized. You arrange everything in its proper places, what we learn of God over in this passage over here, and in this passage over here, and we relate them to each other, we put it all up, on some kind of cork board until we've drawn all the lines together and it makes sense. It's systematized theology. Now I get it. Okay. And this is what I mean. It's it's a philosophy in a way. But the Bible is not going to play that game. 
the Bible by and large, and of course I realize I'm speaking about a, a collection of diverse books, but among those diverse books, you're hardly ever going to find a treatise, a philosophical point-by-point -point statement on the fabric of the universe, how the cosmos works. It just, the writers didn't want to do that, apparently. The closest we come maybe is Ecclesiastes. Okay. Even that book doesn't fully satisfy as a philosophical treatise. No, the Bible is not filled with philosophic documentation or systematic theology laid out nice and neat for us. The Bible is filled with relational language far more often. And this is why much of the Bible really is carried through with story right? Crack open the very beginning, Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The story gets kicking right off the bat, and you are drawn in. You're invited into this epic, compelling story to partake, and, and, and partake in a way where you get to live out the lives of these people of faith in relationship with God in their shoes, in a manner of speaking. Because in any great story, if it is a good story, the reader, the listener, feels like a part of that unraveling story. But stories are also filled with surprises, and it's not always nice and neat. But you play along. You let it whisk you away and take you where it will. But because the Bible is relational and not really philosophic in nature, many of the, the terms that we have applied to the Bible, even our translated terms, that we've received in our English Bibles don't always do justice, I would say, and I do say to my students, to what the, some of the original intent of these words are. Take, for example, the word faith. Very significant to us people of faith, right? But when you hear the word faith, don't you think of it rather philosophically? What is faith? Many of us, I think, might say, well, faith is a belief. It is an assumption about the way reality is even without full evidence of such an investment, right? That's the difference between faith and something more empirical, like the sciences, okay? Doesn't that sound philosophic, right? So uh, accordingly, let me give you an example. We might say, I have faith that God exists, okay? I have faith that there will be a resurrection of the dead one day, okay? But in fact, this word, or in many cases words, in the Hebrew Bible, as well as in the Greek New Testament, in both cases, often what gets translated into our English as faith might better be translated as trust. Now that's a word that has teeth. Not in some kind of distant, ethereal, philosophic language, which uh, I don't mean to offend any philosophers among you, but for the great majority of us, that, that doesn't play out in our day-to-day -day lives. But now trust, trust I get. And trust, by the way, is not just a religious term, is it? That's language that's every day for us. Do you trust me? No, I just met you. <laughs> Do you trust me? Well, yes, according to the character that I've seen from you so far in our lives together, I know the kind of person you are. I trust you in fill in the blank in respect to whatever uh, uh, the, the need of the moment might be. Trust is interpersonal. Trust is relational. Another great example, 
righteousness. This is a lofty sounding word, once again, philosophic, very religious in nature. Very often, uh, the, the word and words in Hebrew, and once again, I would extend this into the Greek of the New Testament, the words that get translated as righteousness very often might be better translated as justice. And justice, even that kind of language these days gets philosophic in nature, but for them, justice is the ability to see the humanity in my fellow being over here, to see them for their presence, not just as a number. And then even words like salvation. Salvation has been mystified to us, right? And we think of salvation of souls, we think of it in a grand, once again, philosophic or religious scheme. Why not translate it as rescue? Many of us in our lives have had moments where we needed rescue. And it doesn't always have to be some grandiose thing on the level of salvation of souls, although we would want that too. But the very, the very pressing need of the first rescue that we see in the Bible comes in the book of Exodus. What do the Israelites need salvation from? What do they need rescue from? A real present danger of these Egyptian overlords, right? Who enslave, who oppress them. This is what I mean when I tell my students that the Bible's language, the Bible's themes, tend to be far more relational, far more interpersonal in nature than they are really philosophic or even systematically religious, systematically theological. And so the way that we are even invited to get to know God is not God as an idea, but God as person. Please understand me correctly when I say person here. I don't mean person in that limited sense of a human being, but person as in personal. As in we are invited to learn the character of God first rather than ideas about the essence of God, what the divine is, which would still remain mysterious to us. And so in the scriptures, we are first invited to get to know God personally. Now this relates even to how we look at the word hope in the Bible. Now here I'm gonna speak more about my expertise in Hebrew Bible than in New Testament. Those like my colleague, my friend, my boss who's now going away to Canada, Jim Dvorak will tell you. Uh, he, can, he can attest as far as the New Testament is concerned, but in the Hebrew Bible, very often words that get translated, and there's more than one, but those that get translated as hope tend to fall in this semantic domain where they are much more about the idea of waiting, and specifically waiting for somebody. Okay? So hope, hope is expectation. We all know this. Okay? It's not here yet. It's on the horizon. But because it's not here yet, we have to wait until it does get here. And it's not just an it. Again, as I said, it's interpersonal. I have to wait for someone to bring about a better situation than I'm currently seeing. Let me show an example of this from the Psalms. Psalms, as a book, has the most uses of hope language in the entire Hebrew Bible, the most occurrences. And here's one such example. Psalm 62, 5 through 8 says, Just wait silently for God, O my soul, for my hope comes from him. Notice that language of wait and hope. Surely he is my rock and my vindication. 
my high fortress in whom I will not be shaken. My vindication and my honor are based on God. My strong rock and my refuge are in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. The interesting thing about the Psalms is that a great many of them, in, in Hebrew, the term for Psalms is Tehillim, which might more literally translate as praises, but you and I know it's a book filled with a lot of emotions and not always praises. Many of them are open questions to God. Many of them are impassioned demands of God in the, in the heat of the moment. Oh God, where are you? Many of the Psalms, according to uh, Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann, are written in a context uh, that he calls a context of disorientation, disorientation songs, where the psalmist's world, and honestly, probably the world of the psalmist's audience as well, the first singers of these texts, their world was in upheaval. They were disoriented. Some of the earlier systems that they had trusted in, including their own systematic theologies that convinced them this is how God works in the world, this is how the cosmos runs until it doesn't or until God doesn't. When those systems break down, you are disoriented. I imagine without polling you all that you've had moments like this. It's very human. We all do. And in those seasons... The Psalms often give us great examples of people who, they don't know what's going on. They thought they did, not anymore. But let's invest our trust in God nevertheless. Let's put our hope and wait relationally for this God whom we still are in relationship with to act and pull us out of this terrible situation, this disorientation. Now, Second to the book of Psalms, in terms of uses of the word or the language in general of hope, is oddly enough the book of Job. Who knew, right? Now let's summarize for ourselves what the book of Job is about, right? The beginning of Job, we are told that Job is a righteous and upright man, a person of integrity, right? Everything that he does seems oriented toward the praise and the duty toward God. And Job enjoys all sorts of wealth interpreted in, in their worldview as blessings from God. Okay? He has all sorts of flock and cattle, donkeys, many servants, uh, a, a large family with adults, sons, and daughters. Uh, the man has it all, and the man is faithful to God. But very early in the text of Job, we find that a test is decided upon in heaven where the Lord God decides he is going to see whether Job is faithful to him, truly committed to him as a God-fearing man, only because he gets the goodies, those golden nuggets from God, tit for tat, right? Or is he truly committed to God for God's own sake, for, for goodness? And the way to test this is to take away all that Job has enjoyed so far in his life, all of his wealth, all of his children, and even to take away his health to the point 
where he is struck all across his body with what must have been terribly painful sores, constantly dogging him. And the man now finds himself in one of the most miserable of states that any of us can imagine. And for the majority of the book of Job, we read a conversation. A conversation between Job, this poor, suffering individual who has done his whole life every good thing he can think of for his God. He has been faithful. And his friends who first come to comfort him, but as we know, those of us who have read through the book of Job end up spending the majority of their time really just trying to assure themselves that the system still works. The system that they hope in. They're sure that they know why Job is suffering. Surely, Job, you must have done some iniquity. You must have done some terrible thing we don't know about. We're just humans, but God's not punishing you for no reason. So, repent. Turn back to God. Call out to Him. Put your hope in Him, and you'll be restored. This is the best advice they can think to give Him, but it ends up being yet another bit of suffering that this poor Job has to go through. And see, the thing about Job's, Job, Job's own understanding of hope and that of his friends is it, they might be using some of the same language, but they have a different understanding of how they use that word. For Job's friends, even though they might even say that their hope is in God, we see in the fruit of their words that their hope is really in a system of understanding how the cosmos works and understanding how God works. That system, we actually have a name for in biblical and theological studies. We say that uh, for many people of the ancient Near Eastern world, including Israel, bear in mind Job and his friends are not Israelites, but for Israelites as well as for others, many of them operated with a model of how God works in the world, and that model we call retribution theology. Many of us have our own versions of the same sort of theology these days. Here's how it goes. If you do good things, God will reward you for those good things, those good deeds. If you do bad things, God will punish you for those bad things. That's the short and sweet of it. It might sound a little familiar, huh? But the thing about retribution theology, at least in the ancient Near East, for many peoples of various cultures, was that... Uh, the place where you would see God give you those good things, the, what we might call blessings, as a reward for your faithfulness, your good service, would be right here and now, on this earth. For much of the history of Israel, in fact, we don't see any hope in a resurrection. That only comes actually late in the game, after exile. If you want to understand uh, an example of this, because that might be the first time you're hearing this. Am I right, church, some of you? <laughs> if you've never heard the like of that, take a look sometime at Deuteronomy 27, 28, and look at the, the, the blessings that are promised to Israel if they are faithful to their covenant with Yahweh God in the midst of the land he is giving them as a possession. What are the blessings they can hope to, to gain from God in this relationship? Well, Bountiful crops. Most of them are farmers, right? Um, rains in season. Being delivered from any enemies that might cross their borders. Having large families like Job. Okay? No mention 
of a resurrection, no mention of life after death. If anything, when life is mentioned, it's the promise that you will have a long life in the land, in the land. So this is Israel's best hope. This is their system that gives them confidence. If we put in our part by way of this covenant and we obey God's commands, we expect he'll bless us. We'll see it in the fields as we look out from our house and see all those crops coming in in due season. Yes, God is blessing us because we've remained faithful. And peace in our borders. We're not being invaded by others. Yes, God is blessing us. And long life and health and all of this. The curses, which are also mentioned in that section, Deuteronomy 27, 28, include basically the negative image of all those, right? The rains will not come in their seasons. You will have famine in the land, and when not famine, you'll have blight on your crops. You will experience death in your families. You will lose children. You will not have a long life in the land. In fact, even before you die, you might experience exile. You'll be kicked out of the land that God had blessed and, and handed over to you and your ancestors. So this is the way that many ancient Near Easterners, including Israelites, thought. Now, notice, this is a system of thought. It's a theology, and it does say things about God. But as a system, there came moments in the history of Israel, and certainly in the story of Job, there came a moment in his own life when that sort of a system, the math doesn't play out anymore. I've done the equation. I double-checked myself. It's not working. The system needs to be tweaked. It looks broken. After all, had Job not been faithful? Yes. And yet, it's not playing out the way he expected. I did all these things for God. Where's the reward? And so, Job's friends believed they had a hope in a system that so far, as far as they were concerned, in their personal experiences, it seems to work. Let me show you what I mean. This is coming from Eliphaz, one of the three friends, the first to speak to Job. And in his discourse, he says, is not your reverence, Job, your religion, we could even translate that as, is not your religion your confidence and the integrity of your ways, your hope? Just call to mind what innocent has ever perished? Where have the upright ever been destroyed? It's an interesting statement, isn't it? You will actually, if you read enough Old Testament, you will find similar kind of statements in Proverbs. And it seems that for many ancient Israelites, and in the case of Job and his friends, other ancient Near Easterners, for many of them, maybe living in their local village, their local town, with what they had experienced, maybe this seemed true. The system works. As far as I've seen, I've, I've looked at all those who are faithful to God, those who do what they should. I've, I've never seen them perishing. I've never seen them suffering or destroyed. Can you prove me wrong? Job would say, exhibit A. All right? But up until that point, as far as his words would convey, he had not seen that. Now, you and I might beg to question even that. Imagine, for example, the, what would likely have been high infant mortality rates in their setting. So was his ignorance a willful ignorance, a willful blindness to what was going on in the world? Maybe. 
Or maybe it's that they didn't have access to media, to TV, for example, that shows them pictures from around the world. These days, we are all too familiar with suffering that goes on and seeing innocents perishing. Right? And so, for Eliphaz at the time being, the system seemed to be working but clearly for Job, it could no longer be hoped in. The system was broken. Take this comment from Bildad, another one of Job's friends. Does papyrus grow up without a wetland? Do reeds flourish without water? Yet, while they are still in the shoot and not plucked up, they dry up before all the grasses. Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the impious perishes. Once again, his experience and a lot of this is proverbial language. It had been passed on, and you will see similar statements, once again, in a book like Proverbs, because sometimes it does seem to work, but not in Job's case. He could no longer hope in this system because, as he will go on later in the book to say, Job will complain that, in fact, he's seen a number of impious people, wicked individuals who seem to flourish in life, and to see their children and grandchildren flourish likewise. Where's the justice? It doesn't work like this. The system has failed Job, even as his friends continue to put their hope in it. Likewise, Zophar, just to let you understand that all of Job's friends have similar statements. He says, if there is wrongdoing in your hand, Job, put it far off. Do not let wickedness reside in your tents. Then you will trust that there is hope. You will search for security and rest easy. You will stretch out with no one to disturb you, and many will seek your presence, but the eyes of the wicked wear out. Any refuge is lost to them, and their hope is a passing breath. And here, Zophar, and you'll see similar statements from the other friends, has become so convinced of the system that when he sees Job's case, which Job insists is an anomaly, is an exception to the rule, to the system. He can't bring himself to accept that. No, Job, the system works. What's the iniquity in your hands, right? What are you guilty of? What have your hands done? Turn back to God, cast that far away from you, and then you will have reason to hope. Unlike those who remain in their wickedness, whose hope is a breathy thing passing away. These words might have served a number of people in their context, just as similar statements in the book of Proverbs are a great training grounds for those who are young in the faith, who are learning the ways of wisdom, learning the ways of right religion, service to God. We pass these on even to our children in early phases, don't we? Right? Commit your ways to the Lord. Do what is right. He will guard you. But as we get older, a system, at the very least, needs tweaking. And we can't really put our hope in these systems. And the systems go by many names. Of course, I've given you examples of systematic theology, of philosophies, worldview, how we are convinced the universe works. But it also translates onto government, onto our institutions, our infrastructures, organizations. One day, we might feel that they are unshakable. The next day, they come crashing to the ground. They don't work anymore. 
So what do we do in those situations? Well, clearly for Job, it's not working. And this is why for much of the book of Job, if Job ever mentions hope, and he does a number of times, it's a hope he doesn't have anymore. He even says, for example, uh, of, of a tree that gets cut down to its stump, there is even hope for that stump that it might sprout up again. There might still be life. But for mortals like myself, what do we have awaiting us? Nothing. He is convinced he is cut off from God and therefore from life. The system of theology, the way that Job and his friends thought the world worked is no longer working for him, though he himself subscribed to it in his earlier years as well. But clearly in his own life, it is not working. working. It is broken. But I want to tell you my sisters and brothers this morning, that Job is not really without hope, though much of his language sounds despairing. And so I want us to return to that, that passage we began with, Job 13, in its fuller context. And I want you to consider Job's words here, both how negative they are in general, but also how there is a shred of hope, yet it is not a hope invested in any system. The system's of this world are not working. It is a hope invested in the person of God. And so here's the fuller context. Job says, look, my eye has seen all this. The this is the prior arguments made by Job's friends. Yes, I've seen all of this. My ear has heard it and understood it. In other words, that's Job's way of saying, yeah, I've read the Bible too. <laughs> I've read Proverbs. I, I grew up with the same aphorisms you told me. I know that stuff. I know just as well as you all do. I am not less than you all, but I must speak to Shaddai, one of the titles or names of God. I desire to make my case to God. But you all, Job's friends, you all whitewash with lies. All of you are worthless doctors. You're prescribing me what you think are cures. They're not working. I'm still sick. If only you all would be silent. Let that be your wisdom. Just listen to my case and pay attention to the argument of my lips. Will you speak what is wrong for God? The wrong in this case is the advice from Job's friends. These, again, these proverbs, these little bits of wisdom... If you do right, you'll be rewarded. You'll have long life, right? If you have wickedness, God will judge you for that. You'll see the, the results. Black and white. No space for gray. No space for the innocent suffering. That doesn't work for Job anymore. And so he says, will you speak deception on his behalf? Will you all represent him? Will you all argue for him as if in a court case you're going to be his defendants? Would it go well if he interrogated you all? Or will you deceive him like one does a human? He should make a case against you all. Or do you show favoritism in secret? Does not his grandeur terrify you? Does not the fear of him fall upon you? Your proverbs are platitudes of ash. Your defenses are defenses of clay. Oh, am I? Oh, there we go. Sorry, I skipped ahead there. Be silent for me that I may speak. Then let come to me what may. 
Why do I take my flesh up in my teeth? Why do I lay my soul in my hands? Though he kill me, and here's that verse again. Though he kill me, I will hope in him. I will prove my case before him. Indeed, he is my vindication, for the corrupt do not come before him. Think about the nature of this statement made at a point in Job's life where all the systems that he and his friends might have trusted in before had come crashing down. There's no reason to continue investing his hope in those ways of how he had been assured before, this is how it all works. No hope is there. But there is some little grain of something, some trust in the person of God, in the character, in other words, of God, that convinces him, surely the corrupt, the impious, they don't come before God and have an audience. But I know I could. I know myself, and I know my God, in other words. And so he holds on doggedly, mind you, to the one thing that he can. Even though this God seems to be killing him presently, rending him, tearing from him everything that he had previously given, he still knows his only hope is in the person of that God. And so he will turn to him. What a bold move, considering especially that he does not have the sort of theology you and I do now. But here's the question I want to leave with you Christians. Do we hope in the person of God or do we find ourselves really, if we're honest with ourselves, in those moments where we are alone, in our hearts before God, do we trust more in the systems? Even including the theological systems that tell us this is how it'll all work out in the end. Because I don't need to tell you, many of those systems, we see them break down around us. Governments fail us, institutions fail us. Our own worldview often cracks. We see that it, it's not perfect. We need to make adjustments at the very least. But in those moments, when we might otherwise become despondent, we have opportunity to say, do I trust in the person of God? And so this, I would tell you, is what hope is. Hope is not to be invested in any system, including our best theologies. Hope is a personal and interpersonal thing. Will we hope for the God who in many ways remains inscrutable to us, but who somehow we know we've related to? in those private moments of prayer, in those public moments of praise. We have had a relationship with this God, and will that carry us through when everything else crumbles?